The Creative Process in Chess and Everyday Life, a training podcast by Tudor Wickards. This podcast is offered as an overview for aspiring chess players. I hope it is of particular interest to students of chess of all ages and perhaps to a wider group of people interested in creativity in everyday life. I'll summarise the key points in time-honoured style at the start and in the conclusions. Its main messages are based on those of a leading chess trainer, Mark Tavetsky. His system encourages development of skills of finding candidate moves and selecting a preferred one each time you move. It also suggests ways in which the preferred candidate move can be discovered as quickly and efficiently as possible. Right, so, in summary, the thought processes we're going to examine can be divided into two categories. Methods of searching for a move and calculating variations. Means of economising time and effort, that is to say, rational thinking. By introduction, I've come late and rather tentatively to the role as a chess trainer for junior members of my local chess club. Because of this, I recently went back to my own instruction books to refresh my fading knowledge. One in particular caught my attention. It is Attack and Defence, How Creative Thought Develops in a Chess Player by Mark Dovretsky and Arthur Yusupov. The authors had the highest qualification for training trainers. In the introduction, Dovetsky writes, In the book here before you is the fifth and final volume of the series for budding chess champions. It is based on material from our school for gifted young chess players. Our little school in Moscow existed for only three years, 1990 to 1992. Its sessions were attended by 10 to 15 young people. Nearly all of them first joined at the age of 10 to 15. Five years on, I'm proud to be able to say that eight of our students have become Grand Masters. Now that's an aspiration for any trainer. Dovetsky continues. The issues discussed in this book are not confined narrowly to chess. They are all situated on the border between chess and psychology. The chess player's thoughts at the board, the characteristic processes of decision, taking in a variety of situations... This is the basic content of the book. The volume has less to do with instruction and more to do with creative problem solving. This is the reason I thought that maybe it would be of interest beyond the chess playing community. Just the thought, just the job I thought. Here's how the book continues. In chapter one, the technique of analysis and decision taking, he writes, What do you think about doing a game of chess? We look for promising possibilities, compare them with each other to work out variations, try to neutralise our opponent's counterplay and so forth. All this is a creative process, which admits of no recipes suited in all cases. Yet there are definitely existing rules, precepts of thought, which in some way help us to organise and regulate this process to make it more reliable, to avoid the simplest mistakes and economise our thinking time. Ensure to raise the level of our decision-making. So, just to remind you, according to him, the thought processes in chess can be divided into these two categories. 
methods of searching for a move and calculating variations, and means of economizing time and effort in the thinking, that is to say, making it rational. The approach involves the search for what Jovesky calls candidate moves. These are promising moves, not just for yourself, but for your opponent. It may not be coincidence that the players who take part in the World Chess Championships are known as candidates. He recognised that his process is what other writers have described as bounded rationality. As he puts it, the process is by no means always working. Nevertheless, it's good advice for many situations. His examples are suited more to candidate grandmasters, people of the kind he was working with. However, it seems one that any student of chess could practice with benefits to his or her decision-making. He suggests many nuggets of advice of a practical nature. For example, don't be in a hurry to calculate too far ahead. If problems arrive, the demand, in-depth analysis, don't rush to do it all first. Ask yourself, how essential is it? He rates how once a student was baffled by the complexities of a position. Stop analysing, I said to him, he remarked. At least just look at the position and think what you might have missed. He immediately hit on the solution. Another useful concept is prophylactic thinking. This means taking precautions to avoid future undesired consequences. Very often a pawn move in defence prevents an aggressive bishop move in attack. So as part of prophylactic thinking, you should be asking yourself, what is my opponent trying to do with that move? If you can't answer the question, maybe you should spend a little more time before making your reply. Now on to the second set of principles. These provide a pragmatic approach to selecting your next move. His overall concept is the core task. You have one task and one only to play the next move. He indicates the approximate nature applying to grandmasters and beginners alike. As far as possible, try to minimise your time and effort. You should only calculate the minimum number of variations. He explains what he means. Concentrate on immediate threats, forcing moves such as checks, gains or losses of material. These are easiest to evaluate as candidate moves. Avoid time-wasting, particularly trying to solve the insoluble. When things seem too complex, you may have to rely on what Davosky describes as feel or judgment. Use a process of elimination of candidates when you find a forced move. Get rid of any candidate that has a forced loss. Note on candidates' moves for inexperienced players. These can be classed into four groups. One, no candidate move. Two, one candidate move. Two, two candidate moves. Three, more than two candidate moves. Sure, I've got the numbering wrong there. No candidate move. If you have no candidate move, find a move that improves your position. For example, any piece move improving control of the centre. A prophylactic move, remember those precautionary ones. A threat that needs your opponent to deal with it. One candidate move. Double check your candidate and play it quickly. Note, 
You may be vulnerable to vertical thinking and missing lateral moves if you always find only one candidate move. You may be locked into your early thinking. Two candidate moves. If you have two candidate moves, this is the best position, I would argue. This is the Goldilocks operation. Not too many, not too few. Assuming they're both good enough to play, choose the one that gives the opponent most trouble, as far as you can tell. What if you have more than two candidates' moves? There, it's best to choose the one that avoids mistakes and moves to a simpler position which you are able to calculate clearly. And that's about it. To summarise the overall chapter, the two main points again. One, methods of searching for a move, candidate move, and calculating variations. In these, the important points to apply and remember don't try to calculate too far ahead and remember safety-first moves that strengthen your position. Two, means of economising time and effort, that is to say, rational thinking. Practice the Goldilocks principle. The optimum is to have two promising candidate moves, no more and no less. In the absence of a candidate move, find ways of improving your position. Same applies to uh, point one. So that's it. That's all for this lesson. I hope I've simplified that very complicated situation so that you find it of some use for you to try out during your next games. Postscript. In preparing this, I came across a more recent comment from another chess trainer, Nate Solon. He writes, Your chess rating is probably a pretty accurate reflection of your competitive ability. You can gain a lot of knowledge, but winning more tournament games might have more to do with alertness, energy, time management, etc. The Dvorsky principles, if you like. But on a deeper level, there's often an assumption that your chess journey is only worthwhile if you can show tangible improvement. That leaves only two possibilities. Either you are underrated or the time you devoted to chess has been a waste. But does this assumption make sense? What if there are other possibilities? What if chess success is defined not by competitive success, whether or not it's reflected in rating, but by whether chess enriches your life? A philosophical thought to end a very practical lesson. <laughs>